When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love have always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end, they always fall. Mahatma Gandhi Congratulations, you've made it to another season of Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause. I'm your host, Scott, with Uncle Ian. Scott, I've been really looking forward to this episode. Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is a history podcast obsessed with history's biggest dictators. We've created a knockout competition to determine the single greatest dictator of all time. Each episode features a matchup of two dictators where we discuss the life and times of each leader. The loser of the battle is eliminated from the tournament. The winner remains in the running to be crowned history's biggest dictator. So today's podcast, we're covering two fantastic South Asian subcontinental dictators. The Mughal, Akbar, up against Muhammad Zia-ul-Haq of Pakistan. Akbar the Great, considered the greatest of all the Mughal emperors. Akbar ruled from 1556 to 1605. His empire covered most of modern-day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. So the Mughal Empire that Akbar would eventually rule began with his grandfather, Babur. Babur was born in modern-day Uzbekistan and was descended from two infamous conquerors, Timur and Genghis Khan. And being descended of Timur and Genghis Khan, he wanted to do some conquering in Central Asia. That didn't work out, so he had to settle for conquering India instead. Uncle Ian and I also wanted to conquer Central Asia, but had to settle for conquering podcasting instead. Scott, one thing we could mention too is where the name Mughal came from. In the Persian language, um, Mughal is simply the plural of Mongols. So it reflects the fact that the Mughal emperors, Babar and Akbar and all the family, claimed descendant from Genghis Khan, who we met in one of our earlier one of our earlier episodes. That term continues today. If you've ever heard the word Mughal, not in a skiing related context, but in a context of someone who's powerful, such as a media mogul, it is actually the Mughal word that gave us Mughal. When the British got there, they thought, look at these Mughals, these powerful, and then that shifted to the word Mughal. That's right. It's very, so when we talk about Jay-Z, of whom Uncle Ian is a huge fan, I'm sure, being a large Mughal, we're really talking about Akbar and his mates. Well, we're paying tribute to the power that the Mughals had in their empire. Babo built a kingdom covering Kabul, Punjab, and Delhi, which passed to his son Humayun at his death in 1530 AD. His son, Humayon, was kind of useless. He solidified his position by blinding his brother. Uh, he was then beaten in battle and driven out of India by the usurper, Sher Shah of Sir, who I think had something to do with Sally selling seashells by the seashore. With a lot of help from the Persians, uh, Humayon later got his kingdom back, then lost half of it, fell down a flight of stairs and died. Like I said, he was kind of useless. The throne then passed to his 13-year-old son, Akbar, 
who is the dictator we're covering today. So Akbar, full name Abu al-Fath Jalal al-Din Muhammad Akbar, was born in 1542 in modern-day Pakistan. He's known as Akbar the Great. His name, Akbar, actually means the Great. So he's the Great, the Great. He was a strong archer and loved all martial sports. When he was 19 years old, Akbar apparently was riding and was confronted by a tigress who charged the emperor but was killed in a single sword blow by Akbar. A single sword blow, Uncle Ian. I haven't killed many tigers in my time, but I'm starting to worry this story may have a bit of dictator mythology about it. What do you reckon? It, it does sound like the uh, episode got played up a little and, and a lot of modern rulers... Uh, have learnt that lesson. Well, I'm reminded of President Xi Jinping of China advertising he would walk five kilometres on a mountain road carrying 100 kilograms of wheat on his shoulder without switching shoulders. That was the key point. He never switched the wheat from shoulder to shoulder. He's probably lucky a tiger didn't come along. (laughs) Akbar's following entourage found the emperor standing quietly by the side of a dead animal. He came to power as a teenager and ruled through his regent, Bahram Khan, who helped him deal with a revolt from one of his generals named Hemu. Hemu fought on top of one of his 150 war elephants and was captured after receiving an arrow in the eye. The regent, Bahram Khan, even beheaded Hinu on behalf of Akbar when Akbar said he wouldn't do it. As Akbar got older, he consolidated his power by forcing the regent, Bahram Khan, to retire and then had him assassinated. Akbar then married the regent's widow, which is a big power move right there. It sounds like there might have been a conflict of interest in there somewhere. <laughs> in 1562, he killed his own foster brother, Adam Khan, by throwing him off a roof twice. It was a low building. <laughs> Adam Khan's mother, who was Akbar's foster mother, and wet nurse died of grief 40 days later, and Akbar felt a little guilty, so he built them both a gorgeous mausoleum. Akbar is famous for massively expanding the Mughal Empire. He invaded the state of Marwa, which he conquered in 1561. He then went into the Rajputana region. Instead of fighting, the local ruler Raja Bahari Mal of Amber offered Akbar his daughter. Father of the year, this bloke. As a result, the prince was able to maintain his position by accepting Akbar as his emperor and allowing the region to be absorbed into the Mughal Empire. Akbar used this feudal system as a model for other conquered lands of the Indian subcontinent. Local leaders were allowed to hold their ancestral territories if they acknowledged Akbar as emperor, paid tribute, supplied troops, and organized a marriage alliance with him. He even sent the ruling elite of the newly annexed territory his fancy robes to teach them what it feels like to be a Mughal. That's a good deal. Well, how else would you know? Until you wear the robes yourself, you don't know how it feels. But you go, okay, I'm still on the fence. What if I throw in some robes? Okay, I'm completely on board now. If Akbar's polite request to rule your kingdom was denied, he would become less polite. For example... Akbar became quite cranky during a prolonged invasion of the state of Mewar. In 1568, Akbar captured the fortress of Chitor and decided to massacre its 30,000 civilians. The women undertook the Hindu ritual of Juha, whereby they burned themselves alive in a giant fire to avoid capture and rape. 
when Akbar entered the fortress, it's said to have been nothing but an immense crematorium. As a result, the neighbouring monarchs decided to declare Akbar their emperor. <laughs> Good decision. He continued to conquer territory, annexing Gujarat and Bengal in 1573 and 1576. He followed that up with conquests of Kashmir, Sindh and Afghanistan. By 1601, he ruled most of modern-day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Afghanistan. So with all these newly acquired territories came newly acquired wives. He had married his cousin uh, in 1551 when they were both 14, but it mustn't have worked out well, Uncle Liam, because he later banned cousins from marrying. In the end, Akbar had either 6, 13, 35 or 300 wives, depending on who you ask, which does not include official concubines. Well, I don't know about the unofficial concubines either. It might depend on your definition, but that's quite a wide range of wives or wife surrogate. One of his wives was already married to the son of a lord, but Akbar was so impressed by her beauty, he ordered her husband to divorce her so he could marry her. Which is exactly what happened in Roman times, because Augustus married Livia, having um, instructed Livia's previous husband to divorce her, and in fact gave her away to Augustus at the wedding. Wow, he was really committed to not being killed, wasn't he? That's right. Akbar's empire was too vast for him to rule each corner directly, so like the ancient Romans, Uncle Ian, he appointed governors with military power to administer each region. The danger with these governors and their armies is that they could rebel against him, like Julius Caesar did, for example, with his army in ancient Rome. So instead of being paid directly, officers were paid by collecting tax revenue and then they'd retain the amount of their salary and give the the balance to the emperor. And so Akbar would cleverly rotate officers very frequently, which had two effects. Officers could not build military support and then couldn't rebel because they'd be sent off every, every five minutes. And the short postings also encouraged officers to squeeze as much as they could from the peasants knowing they'd soon be sent elsewhere. So it was quite hard on the peasants. Overall, Akbar's successful governance of all the land that he conquered was due to installing and promoting ministers based on their competence rather than their family connections. They didn't even have to share his religion. He often included many Hindus within his ministers and as governors. And so unlike many Mughal rulers... Akbar attempted to keep his Islamic religion out of government. This would allow him to successfully rule over a large Hindu population. He banned the killings of cows and peacocks, both sacred to the Hindus. He abolished the tax on non-Muslims. He sponsored Hindu temples and visited Sufi shrines. He was so open-minded He invited the Portuguese Catholic Jesuits from Goa, which is southwest India, to discuss religion. The Jesuits expressed disdain for the prophet Muhammad, which Akbar allowed. But this later backfired when Muslim clerics attempted to overthrow Akbar and replace him with his brother. This attempted coup was unsuccessful, but Akbar realised he had to 
be a little bit more careful with his religious tolerance because not everyone would tolerate his religious tolerance. Akbar later began giving Islamic sermons and declared himself the ultimate authority on religion, calling himself the shadow of God. In a typically dictatorial act of arrogance, he then created his own religion called the Din Ilahi, which combined aspects of Islam, Hinduism, Zoroastrians, Jainism, and Christianity. Despite its many influences, this new religion primarily revolved around Akbar, who blasphemously began to see himself as divine. Devotees of the new religion used the phrase Alua Akbar, which means God is great, but also means God is Akbar. I mean awe of someone who wants to build a new city, and we've met dictators like that before, but I don't think we've met anyone, Scott, who started his or her own religion. Of course, Uncle Ian's about to give the quote from Papa Doc. <laughs> oh, when he rewrote the Lord's Prayer. Thou president who art in the presidential palace, <laughs> yeah, hallowed yes. be thy name. Indeed. Um, That's um, uh, Papa Doc Duvalier rewriting the Lord's Prayer, our father, um, to include himself in it. <laughs> He implemented some commendable social policies like banning child marriages under the age of 14 and banning the practice of sati, where the widow sets herself on fire. Men and women very committed to setting themselves on fire in various forms. Despite his obvious talent for rule, the Indian peasants remained in poverty. Uh, Like all good dictators, Akbar and his ruling class enjoyed great wealth and splash cash on gold, jewels, painters, poets, musicians, and scholars. He moved his capital at an extraordinary cost to the town Sikri, thinking it was a good idea because his son was born there. He had a beautiful new town built there out of red sandstone, which he named Fatupur Sikri. He later abandoned the town and moved back to Delhi because he realized he didn't have any water. It's, it's a key infrastructure lesson, I would have thought, especially yeah. in the Indian desert. Fatipur Sikri is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, so Uncle Ian, we technically have another dictator with an award from the UN. Is that our first dictator to have got an award from the UN more than four centuries before the UN even existed? Surely. I don't know. I suppose Hadrian's Wall may be a UNESCO site, but we haven't yet covered him, so he doesn't count. Yeah, true. Just one last thing about weird stuff that he does. He kept thousands of hunting cheetahs, which he trained personally. It just... I just don't understand. Why? Yeah, surely a hundred would be enough, (laughs) depending on what you're hunting. Thousands of cheetahs. It just seems like an unnecessary risk. But he lived to a ripe old age, as Mm. we know. Akbar died in October 1605. His legacy is extraordinary, particularly in India. He entrenched the power of the Mughals in the subcontinent, and he's remembered for his religious tolerance, and he's a folk hero in India, but shunned in Pakistan for weakening Islamic preeminence and integrating Hindus into his government. Most significantly, he brought together a collection of small, independent principalities to create a united Indian state. So before we get to Zia ul-Haq, our next dictator, we'll fill in the gap 
Akbar's descendants continued to run the Mughal Empire, and Akbar's grandson, Shah Jahan, builds the Taj Mahal, which is the great mausoleum, the symbol of India. The religious intolerance of later Mughals and general mismanagement fosters the decline of the empire roughly from 1700, producing a power vacuum that was filled by the Hindu Empire, the Marathas, and later the British Empire. So what happened in the late 18th century, early 19th century with the British arrival? So the European powers such as Britain, Portugal, such as Spain and France and the Netherlands all got interested in South Asia and Southeast Asia in the 16th and 17th century as the seaway opened up through the Indian Ocean. And the best capitalizers of this were the British, but not officially. It actually started with the British East India Company, which was literally a company in its own right, but it was sanctioned by the British Crown and the British government. And by the 18th century, um, had become a very strong competitor of the, the Mughal Empire and eventually take over the major cities of the Indian Peninsula. Then the British government got interested, and eventually that led to the subcontinent of India becoming a British colony at the beginning of the 19th century. Lots of other stakeholders too in all of that. Um, You mentioned the Sikhs, Zoroastrians, there were Christians. The Jains. The Jains, plus the provincial governors, the hereditary princes. During the 1930s, each of these parties wanted a, a say in what an independent India would look like. By 1945, the Muslim League and the Hindu Congress trying to accelerate independence, but still couldn't come up with a, a model by which India could be one united country. It's easy with the benefit of hindsight, but the British weren't much help in the sense that after the war, they realised independence was inevitable. And so in early 1947, the British Labour government appointed Lord Mountbatten to be the last viceroy. How was he related to Philip? Lord Mountbatten was uncle of Prince Philip. By the middle of 1947, there was increasing violence and riots across British India. Gandhi, in fact, offered the leadership of United India to Jinnah as a price he was prepared to pay for India to remain united, for the Muslims to be the the first party of government. Um, Jinnah realised that was unsustainable. Gandhi was assassinated by a Hindu, by an extremist Hindu, for being seen to um, give away Indian territory Mm. to Muslims. So Mountbatten organised for a boundary commission. He had to draw a line somewhere between a country. It ended up being two lines because the, the Muslims were given territory in the west and territory in the east with modern day India in the middle for the Hindus and Sikhs. It's estimated that some 7 million Muslims left India to move into either West Pakistan or East Pakistan. 7.5 million Hindus and Sikhs moved from those two arms of Pakistan into the middle, into modern-day India. So it's 15 million people. And it would have been more had the death toll not been so high. We've got a million people die as well in the process. And by the 15th of August of 1947, both India and the new country of Pakistan were proclaimed. So in terms of Pakistan, 
Scott, you you may wonder where the name comes from. Yeah, so India kept the name India. That's they right. Got, they got dibs, I suppose. Is that how it worked? They uh, look, I, I think... Shotgun with a so. name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I, I, uh, I bags the name. But yes, you're right. By then, the name India was well entrenched. Pakistan was, was carved out of India. And the name Pakistan, it's actually derived from the Persian for pure. But also, it's an acronym. And it reflects the provinces that were seen as integral to a potential Muslim homeland. Punjabi, the Afghani provinces in the northwest frontier, the Kashmiri provinces. Controversial. Um, the I is for the Indus Valley, the S is for the Sindh provinces, and the Stan represents both Baluchistan, which is a province in its own right, but it's it's also a word for homeland, which is why, of course, in that area we've got Afghanistan, Uzbekistan. Tajikistan, etc. Ziyahul Haq, ironically, was born in what we now call India. Born in a city in western India called Jalunda. In 1941, the census told us that 45% of the population was Muslim, 27% was Hindu, and 26% was Sikh. And this was the city in which a young Ziyahul Haq was growing up. So that was in 1941. In 1951, so four years after partition, the Muslim proportion of residents of Jalunda in western India had dropped from 45.2% to 0.2%. They all left. They all left. They all left. All, all were killed. Yes, that's right. 45% of the city just up and moved because they weren't going to feel safe. Which brings us to 1971 when West Pakistan and East Pakistan split up and East Pakistan became the country we call Bangladesh. So Uncle Ian, with all that being covered, talk to me about Muhammad Ziyahulhaq. Muhammad Zia ul Haq, the sixth president of Pakistan, born on the 12th of August 1924. Um, his father was an army administrator and a devout Muslim. His father's name was Akbar. Very good. Zia was edited at St. Stephen's College in Delhi and the Indian Military Academy. He was commissioned in 1943 and served as a British Indian Army officer in Burma and Malaya. Before the age of 20, he's fighting in the Second World War in Burma and Malaysia. Yep, fighting for the British. In 1947, he opted to join the Pakistani Army as a major, as a 23-year-old. He was very orthodox as a youth, didn't partake of drinking, gambling, dancing, even when he was undertaking military training in the USA in the early 1960s. Kansas. Uh, that's right. Hard to picture. <laughs> Muhammad Zia in Kansas. By 1975, he was the Lieutenant General. And the following year, Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto appointed him as Army Chief in Staff. The interesting thing about that appointment was that Bhutto overlooked seven more senior officers before putting Zia in that role. So he's got seven blokes who all may not commit a coup against him. And he went, no, 
I like the look of you. You've got a trustworthy face. Yeah, and that that was it. He didn't see Zia as a threat. Mm. And also, Budo's credibility had been taking a bit of a battering. Budo was president at the time of the Indian-Pakistan War in the early 70s, which led to the secession of Bangladesh. And he was trying to restore his own credibility and appointing a devout follower of Islam as his army chief of staff was actually a way of increasing his own Muslim credentials. Because he was seen as a bit too liberal. That's right. And partially it was also he felt that by appointing Zia that Zia would be beholden to him as well. And so Budo as Prime Minister went to a general election in March of 1977 The Pakistan People's Party won 155 of the 200 seats in the general election, but it was seen as widely seen as fraudulent, and this led to widespread riots. And Bhutto implemented martial law. Who who saw it as fraudulent? The the people. The people of Pakistan. The people of Pakistan thought that 76 was on the high side. Are they going to love this referendum? That's exactly right. And Pakistan in 1977 was still reeling after the loss of Bangladesh. Budo's five years as Prime Minister were marked by unpopular nationalisation of industries, alienation of small business owners. The population had been halved by the secession of East Pakistan, so that at the time there were 70 million people in Pakistan. Now, that might sound a lot, but not compared with their neighbour with whom they didn't always have a good relationship, so they certainly felt outnumbered by the Indians. Now, Scott, here on our podcast, we always also like to talk about literacy levels as a good sign of how a country is developing. And I think this gives us a good picture of a country. In in Pakistan in 1977, the literacy rate was 27%. I will add that for males it was 38%, and for females it was 15%. That's surprising. On the 5th of July... 1977, a bloodless coup, beautifully named Operation Fair Play. That's really good. And apparently that was Zia's choice of wording. Fair play. So uh, Bhutto was put under house arrest. Zia had promised there would be elections in 90 days. And so after releasing Bhutto, he perhaps got a little surprised when Bhutto went out and started campaigning. Now that Bhutto was seen as the wronged party, having been deposed and arrested, his rallies actually made him quite popular again. And I think Zia was a bit worried that he might end up on the wrong end of that. So he re-arrested Bhutto, refused to hold the elections that he'd promised, and Zia arranged for Bhutto to be charged with the murder of a political opponent. Put on trial, I think he'd learned a bit from Stalin about putting people on trial, and Zulfikar Ali Bhutto was hanged in 1979 and I can remember the worldwide outrage at a supposed democracy putting a previous leader on trial and executing him. Now with these promised elections that never happened. The 90 days went for what (laughs) 10 years. (laughs) The 90 days went for a very long time but Zia had the law on his side because the Supreme Court had ruled that overthrowing Bhutto was legal on the grounds of necessity. How do they make that determination? Well, apparently it got written into Pakistani law that there's a thing called the doctrine of necessity. So, But who decides what's, that, what's necessary? I think the members of the Supreme Court who were appointed by Zia. 
And then Zia appointed himself Chief Martial Law Administrator. Now, we've seen some great titles, and while this isn't the greatest, I still like it. Yeah, it's still enjoyable. And it's succinct, it's accurate, and he lived up to that title because in 1979 he banned all political parties. (laughs) So uh, he's certainly reading from the playbook there, Scott, I think it's fair to say. So 1979, Zia's well on his way to becoming an international pariah. He's arranged for the execution of his major political opponent. He has refused to hold elections. He's stacked the Supreme Court. He has curbed civil liberties. He's censored the press. He's He's ticking a lot of boxes on Dictator Bingo, isn't he? (laughs) That's it. One thing beyond his control came to his aid on the international credibility stage, and that was the Soviet Union. Suddenly, Zia was a popular figure in the West. The Soviet Union marches into Afghanistan, looking for, as they say, a warm water port. And Zia, along with Saudi Arabia, very vocal in supporting the Mujahideen, who were fighting against the Soviet invasion. There had been, um, throughout the 70s, years of instability in Afghanistan. Sad to say, no one really noticed And I think the Soviets thought no one would notice when they marched in. After the overthrow of the Shah of Iran and after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, um, Zia worked very hard on bolstering ties not only with the US, but also with China. Coming into office at the beginning of 1981, President Reagan was a big fan of Zia's conservatism and his anti-Soviet stance. And Scott we've already seen that nothing opens a CIA checkbook like an anti-Soviet stance. Um, Absolutely. We've seen it in Latin America. We've seen it in Southeast Asia. We've seen it in Southern Africa. And now it's happening in South Asia. On the foreign policy front, we mentioned Indira Gandhi before. She was Prime Minister of India through until late 1984, at which time she was assassinated by members of her Sikh bodyguards. Her son and successor Rajiv Gandhi and Zia actually worked to develop a relationship together. And I think the key element that shows the development of that relationship was that they watched a cricket test together. (laughs) Who won? It was a Pakistan versus India test in India. It was probably a draw because neither side was prepared to risk losing. (laughs) But... um, I, I can look that up and we can spend some time on that in the next retrospective yeah, if you like. Good. So on the domestic front, Budo had been very much involved in nationalising industries. Zia went the other way. He wanted to work towards economic deregulation, but also to build up Pakistan's industrial capacity. Zia also escalated the atomic bomb project. Now, Bhutto had previously sponsored this. Zia did nothing to stop it, and in fact, he encouraged it. Zia kept the atomic bomb project going. Now, Bhutto had previously sponsored this, but Zia's relationships with the Chinese were integral in getting hold of technicians and technology to help Pakistan become a nuclear power. Zia actually assisted China, Iran and North Korea acquire nuclear weapons, giving them um, the materials in order to help deflect attention from his own nuclear program. Mate, why are you doing that? It's bad enough you're getting them rather than you giving them to the North Koreans. Continuing the playbook, he suspended the 1973 constitution and 
that gave him pretty strong powers. On the subject of the Constitution, President Zia said, What is a constitution? It is a booklet with 12 or 10 pages. I can tear them away and say that tomorrow we should live under a different system. Today the people will follow wherever I lead. All the politicians, including the once mighty Mr. Butto, will follow me with tails wagging. The pinnacle of his reign was the referendum in 1984. Scott, do you remember what the um, result was in favour of Zia's rule in that 1984 referendum? 98.5%, I think it was. (laughs) It depends on the sources you read, but it was somewhere between 97.8 and 98.5. So there's still a couple of um, still a couple of ballots out there that haven't been fully accounted for. Um, <laughs> well, they they said they had a, a, a turnout of 60 something percent, and it, I think it turned out to be 30 percent. I think maybe you're right in the sense that there were 60 percent officially recorded, and then 30 percent perhaps <laughs> was the number that was counted. And the way the question was worded, it was guaranteed to get... I think they effect, ended up just writing, do you like Islam? And a whole bunch of people said yes. And at the, I think in the fine print it says, and keep me as dictator for life. And, and, and people missed that bit. But it was worded to say, would you like an Islamic such and such and such and such? And people said, oh, yeah, sounds good. So, look, either way, that's another one from the playbook, I think, the high level of uh, referendum. Now... Zia wanted to be seen as a, as a fair and honest ruler. So in February of 1985, general elections for the National Assembly. Can't ask for fairer than that. After the elections, everybody found out that the National Assembly was only an advisory body. Didn't, didn't actually have any power. So they're not making any laws. Not making any laws they're or just, any decisions uh, or reviewing around, budgets or anything. They get to have a bit of a chat, talk about what they'd like to have happen then approach Zia, who would do whatever he wanted. That's right. And and he had the constitutional power to appoint the Prime Minister, regardless of what the National Assembly thought. As part of having that supreme power, Zia made sure that the courts implemented Sharia law, and the emphasis on Sharia law was part of his Islamization philosophy. Now, we've, we've spoken about Islamist rulers before, and while Zia's sentiment was certainly in favour of Sharia law, the main use of it was as a threat. He wasn't actually implementing the strongest aspects of Sharia law, but they were on the statute books, and had he lived longer, he may well have made use of those. I'll quote him on the subject. He said, Pakistan, which was created in the name of Islam, will continue to survive only if it sticks to Islam. That is why I consider the introduction of an Islamic system as an essential prerequisite for the country. He introduced Sharia benches in the High Court to judge legal cases on the teachings of the Quran. He introduced tens of thousands of activists from the Jamaat-e-Islami party were appointed to government posts. He replaced parts of the Pakistani Penal Code with these 1979 Hudud Ordinance, which added new criminal offences of adultery and fornication to Pakistani law and new punishments of whipping, amputation and stoning to death. And if a rape victim was unable to prove her allegation, bringing the case to court was considered equivalent to a confession of sexual intercourse outside of marriage, 
which was a crime, punishable by imprisonment or stoning. Under Zia, the order for women to cover their heads while in public, in public schools, colleges, and state television, children's textbooks were replaced to remove un-Islamic material, and eating and drinking during Ramadan was banned, and blasphemy laws were introduced to punish anyone who disrespected the Islamic prophet Muhammad, his family, his companions, or any Islamic symbols. So during Zia's rule... Hundreds of Bhutto supporters were publicly flogged, and while Zia denied that any political prisoners were put in jail, Amnesty tells us that thousands of political prisoners were put in jail during Zia's reign. In May of 1988, Zia dissolved the National Assembly and removed the Prime Minister he'd appointed, so that advisory body lasted barely three years. By this time, Zia's been in power for 11 years and still in his early 60s, didn't really give any sign that he'd be likely to be giving up power in the near future. So, Scott, I'd now like to quote from Dilip Hiro's book, The Longest August, which is about the unflinching rivalry between India and Pakistan. On August the 17th, 1988, a C-130 Hercules turboprop transport plane named Pac-1, equipped with a sealed air-conditioned capsule and carrying a four-man crew and 27 passengers, crashed at 3.52pm, 18 miles from Bahawulpa Airport. Besides Zia-ul-Haq, the dead included Pakistan's chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the US ambassador to Pakistan, and a dozen other Pakistani generals. After lurching up and down in the sky, Pakwan plunged into the soil with such force that its propellers churned the ground for several feet. It then exploded, the crash igniting 20,000 pounds of fuel, which burned for hours. End of quote. The plane was heading back to Islamabad, Zia had been watching a display of new military equipment, including tanks. Most likely sabotage. But firstly, no one's claimed responsibility. And secondly, the identity of the saboteurs has never been proven. Were the Indians behind it? Bit of a risk for the Indians to, to blow up a plane if the US ambassador to Pakistan's on board. That only invites retribution. Plus, the Indians really wouldn't have known who would take over from Zia. So Zia was a bit of the devil they knew at that stage. What's uh, the benefit of, of killing him? You could get another one. You could get right. someone worse. Yeah. Um, all we know is that the mangoes were behind it. I'm pretty sure, Uncle Ian, the mango farmers, the, the explosives were being told the explosives were hidden in a crate of mangoes. And mango skids are everywhere, the, the rubble of this plane. Yes, yeah, the, the most scientific explanation was that it was a canister of nerve gas smuggled on the plane inside a crate of mangoes once the nerve gas uh, combined with the um, air conditioning, it will have knocked out the pilots and put the plane into a put the plane into a spiral. That's the most likely cause. Interestingly, the next day at hospital when they were trying to conduct the forensic investigation, oh. the military stepped in. 
and ordered that their remains be buried. The debate continues to this day. Um, Zia's own family has its own theories. The son reckons he confirmed the presence of explosives in the mango crates and that nerve gas was sprayed in the cockpit as well, just in case. He also claims that a projectile hit the plane. So I don't know how many forms of sabotage you need to take down a plane, but he reckons at least three. He also claims that the former Pakistani army chief and the former national security advisor arranged the crash in conjunction with both the Indian and Israeli spy agencies. So there was there's a lot going on here. It reminds me of the Simpsons episode where Bart and friends try to figure out the strange behavior of the adults. We're all in agreement about what's going on with the adults. Millhouse? Okay, here's what we've got. The Rand Corporation, in conjunction with the saucer people, thank you, under the supervision of the reverse vampires, <laughs> are forcing our parents to go to bed early in a fiendish plot to eliminate the meal of dinner. We're through the looking glass here, people. There have been a lot of theories advanced, and that's probably as close as any of them. Just what about the Soviets? They were upset with the Pakistanis for, particularly Zia, for helping the Mujahideen resist their invasion. Likely culprit. The other issue is with all the nuclear proliferation. I'm sure there was a lot of countries that didn't want to see a religious nutjob get his hands on a nuclear weapon. Look, all of that could be true, and while I'm not sure that Gorbachev would have been behind it, it's quite possible the KGB were, and they wouldn't have been upset about um, killing the US ambassador to Pakistan as well. So, Scott, you know I love a good obituary, and none better than your New York Times. And they said it in a single sentence. He consistently promised democracy without ever really giving it. The New York Times then went on to quote Zia as having said, I really have been a reluctant ruler, but I'm determined to stay here until I solve all of the many problems. What a thoughtful way of giving service to his country. Until he solves all the problems. That's what, that's what he's quoted as having said. Poverty, hunger. That's exactly right. Religious so- animosity. So in 1988, at the time of Zia's death, Pakistan had been an independent country for 41 years. It had been under military rule for 24 of those 41 years. Elections were finally held in November of 1988, three months after the plane crash. The new Prime Minister, who had returned from exile in 1986, was Benazir Bhutto, was the daughter of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Her name was Benazir. Okay, so it's time we have to pick a winner between these two dictators, Akbar the Great or Muhammad Zia Haq. What are you thinking? Who do we remember today? Even though he's, it's less than 33 years since he was killed, um, Zia's not much of a memory either. No. I'd um, say his biggest legacy is the fact that Pakistan has nuclear weapons, and that's always a worry. I remember when Obama was interviewed, there someone asked him, what, what in the world, what keeps you up at night? And he said, Pakistan. They said, oh, why Pakistan? 
Well, he said, well, all it takes is one military coup and you've got some sort of nut who's in control of a large nuclear weapon. So I think that is significant. As it stands, I think Akbar, he created an empire, he created a ginormous country. And that empire continued on for centuries after him. You talked about the moving of the capital city. You talked about the founding of his own religion. You talked about his killing his foster brother and his foster mother died of grief. So some of the other good things that Akbar did. They're throwing the guy off the roof twice. <laughs> I like that. I, I do like that. And I, I, I like that word mogul too. So that's, that's some legacy. It's ironic, though, that the the Mughal Empire itself, with having brought such a strong Muslim presence into the subcontinent, was then at the forefront of the challenges of partition in 1947. So that was a legacy in its own way, too. So maybe that's what clinches it for Akbar. Congratulations to Akbar. You remain in the contest to be crowned history's biggest dictator. Sorry, Zia. You've been eliminated from the tournament. So, Uncle Ian, have a bit of an announcement. Next week, next episode, I thought perhaps we could go to Korea. It's only been a matter of time, Scott, before we look at the regime. We won't call it North or South because that's not the terms they use. So, What is the terms they used, Uncle Ian? Wouldn't be the People's Democratic Republic, <laughs> would it, Scott? You know I love that. The more you talk about the people or democracy in the name, the less chance that the people get democracy. Yes, we're doing the uh, we're doing the Kims as a job lot. Kim Jong Un, Kim Jong Il, Kim Il Sung. Thank you for listening to Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause, Season Three. Thanks, Scott. <laughs>